How can we escape becoming cynical when reality begins to teach us hard lessons? This is Truth Encounter, and our discussion today will reveal how you can find a refuge that can guarantee far more than any retirement plan. As we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33, Dave introduces our study titled, A Refuge for the Future, sharing about a conversation he had with a college senior. Let's join Dave. You know, I was thinking about the future, visiting down in Austin with Paul, who's in this big job interview thing. It took me back to my own graduation days from college. And some of you can remember that. Some of, you, some of you that are in high school are looking forward to that. And Paul was telling me about this interview and that interview. And he was telling me about the top seven or the big seven accounting firms, you know, that are, that are offering different opportunities. And he talked about them bringing them up here to Dallas and whining and dining them. And, and I could feel all that anticipation. No, I could be real cynical about that. Because I've seen college kids like that. They were wined and dined in Dallas. They're given the job and they begin to enter the marketplace and things are going really great. They go about 15 years in their career and then whammo. They're in middle management. The whole company's bought out by some firm back east or some firm in Britain or Germany. And all of a sudden they say, let's just axe all the middle management. So here's a college kid that's now built his entire life into one of these companies for 15 years and now he's out on the street. And so it could make me real cynical. I could say, Paul, you got all this anticipation, all this excitement about the future, but it's a bunch of baloney because it can all be pulled right out from underneath you. The future's uncertain, isn't it? You see, every one of us today, as we think about it, like, you know, I thought about today. You know, you get up in the morning early. On a regular day, you know, you go up and tank a couple of cups of coffee, and you go to work, and you put in eight hours, you know, take a break for lunch, and you drive home through the traffic, and you eat a good supper, maybe watch a little TV, maybe try to read the Dallas Morning News or something, and then you hit the hay, and, and there's this routine. In fact, every one of you have a routine. Every one of you have a very well-developed routine, Monday through Friday, that you're in. But do you ever stop and think of it that the phone could ring and the phone could be a ring from death and that our whole future changes? In fact, we could have some of you that could stand up right now and say, Dave, I know what it's like to have my routine interrupted. I know what it's like to be like that college student that's looking forward to a job and suddenly I go in for a checkup and the physician looks at me and says, you know, you got a serious problem and suddenly thud. Your whole routine goes out the window. There was one illustration or one story that both Chuck Swindoll and Chuck Colson used. And they told the story. Chuck Colson was the one that did it. He talked about going to, to President Nixon's funeral. And he talked about being there, there out there in Yoma Linda. And he talked about it being a rainy day. And some of you remember seeing that in the news. And suddenly the sun broke through this hazy, rainy, gloomy thing. He talked about this scene because it almost became luminescent as the sun shone forth and it, and, it, and it shone down upon a casket. Here he was, President Nixon's former associate and a man that took the fall with him and had maintained a friendship. And Chuck was sitting right there with all the other dignitaries and he shared that as he, as he looked at the sun coming down this casket that he could look and there in the front row were the former presidents that were living. President Reagan, President Carter, they're all right there. Just sitting there. And the, and the present president, President Clinton, right there. All the Congress had come out. And Chuck said this. He could arguably say 
that in that gathering there in California were the most powerful men and women in all the world. The most powerful men, the, the ones and women, those that held the decision-making process, were just sitting there. And Chuck said what struck him is that they're all looking straight ahead at a casket. And then Chuck quoted the great French existentialist named Camus. He said that if there is no God, if there is no ultimate being, then the only serious question is, when am I going to take my life? The question of suicide is all that's left. I mean, you talk about negativism, you talk about cynicism. And see, what Chuck was, was telling us is that much of his life as an Ivy League grad, that he lived his life for the big job interview that I started out with, a college student that's able to climb right to the top of the corporate world and right to the top of the political world and right to the top of life. And, and some of us can dream about being able to have those power positions and, and having power lunches and being able to travel and do all of that. And Chuck had all of that. And then he lost it all, and he, and he talked about the fact that, that all of life is ultimately focused on the box. But I want to go beyond that. I want to tell every one of you that if you live life just in terms of a 70-year parameter, that if you live your life just in terms of, of having a family now and working a job and, 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 and growing older and doing all the things that you want to do, that life's going to come up ultimately to a big nothing for you. That all the power and all the prestige and all the success is going to end. And, and the thing about my own life now is that I find whenever I focus on that casket, whenever I think about the casket, there's a part of me that wants to run away from that. I want to try to deny it. One of the worst parts of my job as a pastor teacher is that I really can't deny death very long. You see, because you, some of you keep dying. And there, there's accidents that invade every year. And there's, there's sicknesses that invade every year. And so I can never get away from the fact... See, I can't just say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do your service. Because I, I don't want to deal with death this week. You see, I think it's a real bummer. You know, I think it's a real lousy situation. It makes me feel really lousy. So I'm just not going to do your funeral. I'm sorry. See, I can't do that. Because I'm a pastor. In fact, you even pay me. You know, I, I need to be there. But it's hard. There's a part of me just sharing from my soul this morning. There's a part of me that death, that, that sunlight focusing on that casket, realizing that all of life ultimately ends up there. All this physical life ultimately ends dead in some kind of a box. Really pulls me down. And that's why I really respond when I've got some man or some woman that can say, I can face that with confidence. I can face that with, with, with salvation in my heart. And it's Moses the great. You see, we can talk about greatness. There's probably been few human beings that are as great as Moses. I mean, Moses is a George Washington for the nation of Israel. Even greater. Moses laid the groundwork legally for all of Western culture. Even if I was not a born-again believer, I could arguably argue that Moses is one of the most, if not the most, influential man other than Jesus Christ that ever lived. And as we close the book of Deuteronomy, we also come to the close of Moses' life. We come to the close of Moses' life. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 32. We dealt with Moses' song, and as he sang this song, reminding the people of their history that was coming. 
As he concluded his singing, and all of our life is like a song. It gives us an opportunity to communicate a message. And a song is one of the most powerful ways that we can do it. But all songs, all human songs, eventually have to end. Every singer, no matter how great they might be able to sing, Frank Sinatra will no longer be able to croon. Pavarotti will no longer be able to hit those high tenor voices. And that's what the close of the book of Deuteronomy is all about. In Deuteronomy 32. It says as Moses concludes his song, as you pick it up in verse 44, do you have it? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 44 says this, Moses came with Joshua, and he spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. But when Moses finished reciting all these words, when he finished his song, every one of you eventually are going to finish your song. It's going to be the end of this present time to be able to do what God wants us to do. And Moses, even as great as he was, came to the end of his song. And it's the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And some of you are saying, praise the Lord. I thought we'd never get to the end of the song. I think we really needed this time in the midst of a society of total moral relativism where there's no standard and no understanding of the Ten Commandments. I know in my own heart I needed this time of extended revelation from Moses to get my feet in the ground to learn about ethics again. Amen? I think I needed that. In order to really understand grace, we need to understand truth. And that's what we've been doing. But Moses is coming to the end of his song as we conclude our study of the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses says this. He said, take to heart all the words that I solemnly declare to you this day. He's an old man. You can, it's a, just a dramatic scene. You can see this old patriarch of a man, a veteran of the deliverance through the Red Sea, a veteran of the preservation of the wilderness. And now he's 120 years of age. He's at the end of his course, and he says, I want you to remember, take to heart all the words that I have solemnly declared to you, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law, all the words of my instruction. And then he tells them why. He said, because these are not idle words, they are your life. It's about time that we as God's children realize that the words contained in Genesis through Revelation are not idle words. They are our life. That's what we've been learning Again and again and again. I've often used the illustration with you that the instruction manual of the Word of God is like the instruction manuals that Dale Knott uses when he's trying to teach me how to fly. And, and I think I'll probably be 80 years old. I'll probably be in heaven when I really fly. But I want to understand that, that having to study a manual, that in just a few minutes my life would depend upon whether or not I understood it, has really changed the way I think about education. It really has. At seminary, I used to read the instruction manual to pass tests, and Dave Lowry and I were really good at it. You know, we could get really good grades because we had like fly traps for a mind that it stuck to us. And at least it stuck to us for a few minutes while we took an exam, but it got me into this whole thing that you study God's Word kind of like for information's sake. But I found that when, when Dale says, Dave, I want you to really learn how to take off and he gives me all this data and he tells me about my speeds and, and everything. It's a totally different ball game because my life will depend upon it. It really changes when you're in an instruction pattern, when your life depends upon it. Do you understand that difference? This word of God is like the flight manual that totally describes life. Just like the, the flight instruction manual for every particular airplane they give all the data, all the statistics, everything you need to be able to be safe in that airplane for that flight. God has given us that in his word. That's what Moses is saying. Do you understand that? 
Moses is telling these people, listen, these are not idle words. This hasn't just been formal education. This hasn't just been intellectual education. Your life, brothers and sisters, depend upon this. We just dedicate these precious little babies. If their families do not build on the revelation of the Word of God, then there will be terrible tragedy that comes into those homes. There will be brokenness. There will be pain because the instructions, the ethical instructions of God's Word are not followed. If we don't do that as a church family, then we create an environment for these growing little babies that will be hypocritical and will be destructive and will not be full of love. That's what Moses meant. You see, he was past the time when he was just having formal times of religiosity and and just talking words. He's an old man. It's almost, his time is almost up and he's saying, these are not idle words. And where that hits home to me, if, if these are not idle words, if my life depends upon that, then I can't afford to go from Sunday to Sunday without opening this book. And I challenge you, there's no way as your pastor teacher that I can really feed you that I can really pump you with all the Word of God that you need to know. As long as we preach in our services much longer than most services that you would go through, I want you to know that we're just scratching the surface. Some of you say, Dave, I wish you would have spent longer in a particular area of Deuteronomy. I wish you would have spent longer on that particular verse. There's no way that I can do that with you. I can only give you tools and I can only whet your appetite. I can only be like someone who points the way to the signpost and say, that's the direction to go. And I want you to get a hunger. I want you to realize as men, as women, as children and young people and young adults, I want you to realize this book is your life. This is your life flight manual. And it's absolutely important for you to know it. Get a hunger for it. And you'll live. I promise you, I promise you from the depths of my being, you'll never come up to me, you children that are here as a 35-year-old, and said, man, I have spent time with God every day in his word. I have learned his instructions. I've allowed his Holy Spirit to touch my heart, even when I didn't feel like doing it. I never got away for more than a day at a time from the instruction manual of the Word of God. I, I have gotten you this book. Man, I wish I never invested those hours. Man, I wish you never told me to do that. That book is totally wrong. It's totally in error. I, you'll never say that. This is the only book I've read year after year after year that I always know in the end it told me the truth. And that's what I covet for you. That's what Moses is saying. This is your life. Now, why is it our life? Because this is the only book that can help you to say, this is the only book that can help you to say what Moses is able to say in a conversation with God in the next few verses. Look at the next paragraph at the end of chapter 32. Verse 48. On that same day, right after Moses finished preaching, singing his song, on that same day the Lord told Moses, Moses had that rare opportunity of just having God carry on personal conversations with him. But this is a heavy one. This is like one of those times when, you, when you're, you go in before your father and you're not sure how he's going to talk to you and he wants to really talk to you about some heavy things. Look what God says. Go up into Abarim, the Abarim Range, to Mount Nebo in Moab. I want you to go mountain climbing, Moses. I want you to go up. We're on the plains of Moab. I want you to go a little bit to the south and I want you to climb up a couple thousand feet and I want you to get right at the top of Mount Pisgah. Mary and I have been there. They have a little monument there. And God is telling Moses, I want you to go up to this mountain and what's going to happen on that mountain. He says, and you will view Canaan, the land I'm going to give to the Israelites as their own possession. 
Moses, as you go up on this mountain, as you go up on Mount Nebo, I want you to look to the north, and I want you to, to, to look to the middle of the Holy Land. I want you to look to the south. I want you to look across the Dead Sea, and I can just, I can, I can, I've done this. I've looked at that panorama, and it moved my heart to think of, of, of this is what Moses was doing. Moses was able to look at all the promised land. All of his life was focused on that promised land. It was taking the people through the wilderness to that promised land. And now he's 120 years of age, right at the end of his life. And the Lord says, I want you to go up in this mountain. I want you to look at the land that the Israelites are going to enter. But notice what he says. He says, I want you on that mountain, in verse 50, there on that mountain that you have climbed, you will die. You will die. And they tell us why. It says, and just as, as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, this is because both of you broke faith with me in the pre- presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, or the waters of rebellion, the waters of contention, Kadesh in the desert of sin. And because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites, therefore you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. I've shared with you many times, this has been one of the most troubling parts of the Bible to me. It hurt me because I'm one of those that, I don't like ties in athletics. I hate ties. I'd rather lose than tie. I hate things that are unfinished. And, and, and like life stories, I hate it when you read a biography and a person just about ready to do what they're supposed to do and then it, they die. I mean, that'll never make a great movie. You just don't have great movies when you get right to the climax and everything that the whole story's been about focused on this and then phew, it fizzles and that's it. Never makes an Academy Award winner. And Moses' life, here's the greatest founder of Israel, the man that laid all of legal foundations. And here at the end of the life, the Lord tells him, go up on this mountain and you're going to die. Look at the land, but you can't take one step into it. And that's a, there's a part of me that gets angry about that. How about you? I say, God, I think you're unfair. I mean, man, this guy put up with two million people. They rebelled against him. Man, I think I've got trouble trying to handle a, handle a church of a few hundred. Man, Moses had million, two million people out there. Every single day they came to him with their problems and, and all their struggles and everything. And he didn't have near the help that I have. I don't know how many guys he had on his staff. Although he did divide the land up very, the, the people up very carefully. And I say, Lord, give the guy a break. He blew it one time. I mean, you should let him, let him just go across the Allenby Bridge once for just a couple hours, please. Lord says, no. I want all of you to understand something. It's a very important lesson. You know, you can do some things in this life that block your future opportunities. I want you to know that. It's a very hard lesson. It's really, it's, it's, a hard, it's a lesson that as Americans we don't want to hear at all. That, that we can make a mistake that really does mess some things up. But it's one of the lessons of Moses' life. What I want you to realize is that Moses, what he's talking about is in Numbers chapter 20. This is the second time the Lord commanded Moses to bring water from a rock. The first time was right at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. They were just beginning to get going. The people came to a, to a place down in the southern part near the, near the Mount of Horeb in, in southern Sinai Peninsula. It was dry. They were parched. didn't have any water. And the Lord told Moses to strike the rock once. 
In fact, we've even had a Jordanian guide tell us, this is the water. As Mary and I saw the water cascading out from the rock, and Dave, you've probably seen that too, the water coming forth with a spring. Well, I don't think that's the place that Moses did it. But uh, you can understand the picture. Moses goes up before the people, and he strikes the rock once. At the end of his career, right at the end of the wilderness wanderings, the Lord God of heaven told Moses this time, and it's very clear in Numbers 20, he says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you just to speak to the rock. Once again, the people are griping. Once again, there's all kinds of contention. Once again, they're rebelling against Moses and they say, why did you ever bring us out in this land? They forgot all about the fact that the Lord had fed them and sustained them every single day for year after year after year. The same thing they started out with. They're still there 38 years later. And Moses gets angry. He gets before the people, and I can hear some cat calls from the audience and somebody cursing them. And one of the worst things to do is to try to lead people, to try to lead people that don't want you to lead them. My tendency is when people don't want me to lead, my attitude is just let go. If you don't want me to play quarterback, fine. I'll walk to the sideline. That's the way I was when I was a kid. Boy, I have to guard against that. Moses got angry. There's nothing more frustrating for a leader to have all that backbiting. But I'm sharing from my heart... I have a real hard time when, when there's a group that says, I'm not going to follow you. Like Jonathan Edwards, I just read this past week. 21 years he ministered in Northampton. Right at the, at the epitome of his career. Known all the way through the colonial colonies. Greatly used in, in, the, in the great awakening. He was, was mightily used to bring hundreds of people into the kingdom. There was a time where the whole town was captivated with the love of Jesus. And there came a day where on a Lord's Day they had a vote. They voted him out. They kicked him out. Man, that's tough. That's kind of like what Moses is getting here. And he got angry about it. The people rejected him. The people rejected him. And Moses got angry about it. So instead of speaking to the rock, he took, his, he took that rod, that mighty rod that had separated the seas, and he smashed the rock twice. And this rock split open. And water gushed forth and fed the people. But the Lord immediately said, Moses, you will not enter the land because you did not treat me as holy. You did not treat me as the sovereign king. You did not obey me. You did not explicitly do what I made very clear to do. And here at the end of Moses' life, I can hear Moses, Moses pray to the Lord often about this. He says, please, Lord, forgive me. Please let me go into the land. It's one of the hardest lessons of all of life is sometimes there's a big no. And this is one of them. You say, Dave, why did God do that? Well, one of the reasons is because God demands obedience. That's one of the lessons we're learning in Deuteronomy. I want you to know that you can make some mistakes. I have to say to those that are children, you can grow up and make some mistakes. And you can really ruin things. You can steal, for example. You can steal, like Chuck Colson slandered somebody, and Chuck Colson lied about some political things. He can never take away the fact that he was in prison. It's very important to remember that. He can never get up before an audience again and say, I'm a Marine, I was a presidential advisor, and stand with pride and honor. He always has to say, no, there was a day in prison. And if Chuck were here today, he would say, those were fatal mistakes, very serious mistakes, serious mistakes. Life is like that sometimes. You fool around in high school. You wander away from the Lord for a few weeks, even a few weeks, and you start messing around as boyfriend and girlfriend, and, and you have sexual intercourse, you know, just one or two times. If it's the right time of the month, it can be a very serious mistake. 
and the womb becomes impregnated and a little baby is born and, and, and there's all kinds of ramifications that come from that. And your society is saying, oh, no, there isn't. Everything is fine. Everything can be great. There's going to be some real serious consequence. And I want you to understand that. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. You can make a mistake. You can fail to honor God. And there's consequences. David committed sin with Bathsheba. There was terrible consequences that flowed from that. It's very important to understand that, that Deuteronomy is saying there's some time when we disobey God that in this life, there's some consequences that flow from that. It's a great warning to walk every day in obedience to the Lord. You say, Dave, why was God so hard on Moses? Because the rock in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains to us that the rock was Christ. And you see, God is very concerned about symbols. He's very concerned about art. He's very concerned about the way messages are communicated. And you see, when he commanded Moses to strike the rock once... Jesus was smote once with a rod. He was sacrificed once on Calvary. He gave his life and was broken once. And the water of life flows freely. And God's concern for every one of you that, that responds to artistic imagery and powerful object lessons. And Jesus, Paul tells us, was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Jesus is our rock. And he's only smote once. And Moses, at the end of that wilderness wandering, when he smote the rock, rock twice, he ruined that image. Jesus is never struck again. False religion is always about striking Jesus again. False religion is always about, about suffering and, and having pain and agony in, in your life and trying to pay the penalty for your sin and striking the rock, striking the rock, trying to get the water there. You don't have to do that. Jesus was struck already for you. He was struck once. He was broken and he bled and he died and the blood and the water flowed freely. And you're cleansed and you're white and you're clean and you never have to strike him again. Now you just have to speak. Now you just have to talk to him and the water of refreshment flows. And Jesus told the woman at the well, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You don't have to strike the Son of God. You don't have to plead with him. You don't have to beat him. You don't have to beat yourself. Isn't that incredible? You can just speak to the rock, just talk to him. You can go to the rock of your salvation and just talk to him and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's the imagery that God wanted. And Moses' disobedience destroyed it. He struck the rock again. And he gave the people the impression, you know, it's my striking the rock. He took glory to himself that it can only belong to the Lord, which is always such an incredible, incredible warning to myself because it's so easy to forget that, man, that, that it's the rock that brings the living water. It has nothing to do with me or with you or anyone else. It's the tremendous gift of God's mercy and that we can never focus on, on a gifted individual in the body of Christ, no matter who they might be. The glory always goes to the Son of God. It's always just speaking to the rock and all of his grace and never any human ingenuity that brings the water flowing. The Lord doesn't bring the water from the rock. We're dead in the water. It's not going to work. Nothing's going to happen. No one's going to be saved. But isn't it great to know as we move into the future now, as we, as we ask God and you're beginning to reach out to neighbors, you're beginning to realize, hey, church isn't really what happens so much on Sunday morning. That's just the huddle time. That's just the time with the coach. Man, the real game is out there during the week with all of our friends and, and bringing the living water to people. And you're beginning to get a hold of that. 
You don't even realize it, but some of your university kids, underneath that tower where the guy shot all those people several years ago, so much tragedy took place. Do you ever stop and think about that? Some of your kids, raised right here, joining with other kids, gathered on, underneath that tower from 7 o'clock till 10 o'clock. They prayed underneath that tower. They sang underneath that tower. Right in the heart of UT, your kids brought living water. The living water continues to flow. Whatever Moses did. But I want you to understand that the lesson of his life means in this life there's some consequences that can flow. But I want to tell you something, because some of you have gotten real discouraged because you feel you've already blown it. I want to share something with you. Moses didn't blow his life. Please understand this. It's so hard to get this balance. Moses would be the first to tell you, I should have never struck the rock. I was disobedient. I've been sorry for it ever since I did it. And God did judge me for it, and he did not let me go into the land. In this life, there were some consequences. But I want you to know, that didn't remove the power from Moses' life. Moses gave the whole book of Deuteronomy after he struck the rock. If I wrote, I've often told you this, if I wrote just a couple lines of Deuteronomy, man, I'll take it. Just think of it, Moses lived in 1400 B.C., and he's been speaking to your hearts for the last several months and years. I'll take that. I mean, what preacher can say, I gave this in 1400 B.C., and man, people, they're growing through my words. Man, don't tell me Moses was a failure. He wrote this whole book after he struck the rock. You know what? God was also with him. God is talking with him now. God is face to face with him. Don't ever say a person's life is a failure if God is with them. Sure, there's some blocks. Sure, there's some consequences. But I want you to understand this. The nature of life is to be able to go face to face with God. To be able to know that God is with you, and he is. God forgave Moses, and God was with him. Didn't remove the consequences, but it meant that God was with him. I also want to remember something else. Ultimately, in eternity, God's a loving daddy. You see, all good daddies know that sometimes you have to spank but spanking is never the final word of relationship. And so at the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember the story well? Peter and them fell asleep, as they were often doing, right at the key times, kind of like some of you in church Sunday morning. And they went out like a light, but they woke up, and guess who was there? You ha- can someone tell me, remember from your Sunday school days or some of the kids that are here? What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter wakes up, and who does he see there? Elijah's there. Do you know where the Mount of Transfiguration is? Well, we don't really know for sure. I would argue that it's probably up at Mount Horeb. We really don't know. But, you know, one thing I do know, where was the mountain? What land was it in? It was in Israel. Now, Elijah was there. Who else was there? Who else was there? I thought he wasn't going to get into the land. I thought he wasn't allowed to be in the land. I thought he died before he entered the land. He did. You know what? If you're in Christ, this life doesn't end at all. There's a line I left out, some of you that are really good and you follow me real carefully. You said, hey, Wurtson, you changed the text today. You skipped right over a very important line. It's the line I want to close with. That's why I skipped it. It's an incredible line. I want you to see what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, you have climbed, you will die, in verse 50. And you will be gathered to your people. You will be gathered to your people. You should say amen on that. You'll be gathered to your people. I want to say to you... As you look at the casket of life that's ahead of you, do you look upon it 
as just a, an ark, you might say, that'll just take you to be gathered with your people. In fact, you don't even need that. You'll just be there and, you know, the, like a friend of mine used to say, don't cry for me. That's only the shell. The nut that was in the shell is, is already gone. And that's true. Now you say, Dave, what are you talking about? God told Moses that he would be gathered with his people. I want to ask you a question. How many of you ever really worry or get uptight about being gathered with your people? You know, one of the things I look forward to? Gatherings with my family. That's what it means to be gathered with your people. The expression to be gathered with your people means to be gathered in a, in a home celebration, family celebration. You know what God was telling Moses? Moses, you're going to die, and you're not going to be able to get into the land. But you know what, Moses? Because you are in the rock, because you're looking forward to the Messiah, you're, it's not going to be the end of the story. You see, if you're just living for now, if you're just in touch with human things, if you're not really into Christ, then this life is all there is, and then you've got something much worse to look forward to. But way back here, nestled in the Old Testament... God told Moses, Moses, you're not going to get into the land, but you know what you are going to do? You're going to be gathered with your people. I'll take that one. In fact, you can keep the land of Canaan. I've walked there several times. You can just keep that land. God loves it. But man, when it comes to the choice of being gathered with my people or being in the land of Israel, I'm going to take gathered with my people. How about you? You say, Dave, what are you talking about? What does God mean when he says gathered with his people? I close with, it, with a tremendous competition that took place between the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the Lord Jesus. It was the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. The Sadducees came to the Lord Jesus one day. And they said, Jesus, there couldn't possibly be a resurrection. Let us tell you a story that shows you how absurd your doctrine of the resurrection is. Remember the story they told? Really weird story. This guy got married to this woman. This woman got married to this guy, and the guy died. You know, she killed him. You know, evidently they had such an exhilarating time their wedding night, he just copped right out. That was it. He died. So she decided to try again. She married another guy. He died. Seven times. I mean, this, this happens over and over and over again. I mean, you talk about the black widow. I mean, this woman has really, really got it. Then they say this. In the resurrection, then finally the woman dies. Seven husbands die, and then she dies. And then, and then they say, then she dies. Now, if you believe in resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife is this woman going to be? It's like they got it. I mean, it shows you how absurd, you know, resurrection life is. I mean, it shows, you know, all these human earthly relationships, you know, they couldn't possibly last forever and ever. And so the whole doctrine of the resurrection is stupid. And Jesus, I can just see the sternness in his eye. He says, you err, because you know neither the power of God or the word of God. And Jesus says, don't you understand that in, that in heaven, in eternity, that what God took only six days to create and all the beauty of the relationships here are going to be transcended by relationships and existences and, and meaning and love that you can't even imagine that your earthly relationships are just a little foretaste. They're just a taste of the love that God had for you forever. In heaven, you're not given in marriage or taken in marriage. You're going to be even greater than the angels. Don't ask me to explain what that means. I don't know. I haven't been to heaven yet. I probably couldn't even explain the wonder of that relationship in heaven. And little kids worried, you know, are, are mom and dad going to be some nebulous, you know, not related to me? Man, we'll be even closer in heaven than we are here. But in a new dimension, in a way that I can't even describe it. And that's what Jesus was saying, who'd been there. 
But then he asked the, the Sadducees a very simple question. He said, didn't God say to Moses at the burning bush, remember Moses we're talking about? Didn't God say to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But interesting enough, in the Hebrew text, you don't even have the am. There isn't the verb to be there. It's just assumed. God is saying as he comes, he's the living God. He is the God that eternally exists. He's the God that is present for the people. And you know what he says when he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying that the, the living God, the God who's really here, is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was a brilliant argument. Because Jesus was saying he was God. He was saying, I don't even need the verb to be in Hebrew. You know what I'm talking about. God said that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still in the bosom of Almighty God. They were alive. They were existing. That's what it means to be gathered with his fathers. You know what God told Moses? He says, Moses, you're going to go up this mountain. You're going to die. But what all the death is going to be, it's going to be a transition. And you're going to get to meet your granddad. You're going to meet your great-granddad. You're going to meet your great-great-great-great-grandfather. In fact, you're going to go all the way back. You're going to meet Father Abraham. You're going to be gathered with Father Abraham. You're going to be gathered with Father Isaac. You're going to be gathered with Father Jacob. That's what Jesus alone can promise. He promises us that way back, tucked into the book of Deuteronomy, way back at the beginning of the Bible, we had a God who promised the resurrection. And he promised that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord, as Paul told us in Philippians. He's saying to Moses, death for you is not just culminating in a box. Death for you will be gathering, a family home gathering with your people, where the consequences of sin and failure in this life will be washed away forever because of the blood of Christ. And you will be in the land, the land of heaven, but ultimately even we'll give you some trips to the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, because God is good. Let's pray. Do you have that kind of confidence that, like Moses, that you can just say, all that death could do to me is gather me with my people. All that death could be is, is an ultimate praise gathering with my people. You say, Dave, no, I don't really have that. Well, you could. Right there where you're sitting, you could just say, Dear Lord Jesus, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place. You died to take the penalty for my sin. You died so that I could be forgiven. We affirm your belief to say, Lord Jesus, I believe. I learned today about the fact that death can be a gathering to my people. It can be a gathering together with those that, that know and love the Lord Jesus. I want to make your people my people because I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. It's not an emotional decision you make. It's a commitment you make in your heart that you're going you're to trust. You're going to depend upon what Jesus did for you. Then you can be confident with Moses. You'll be gathered with your people. So just say it in your heart, dear Lord Jesus, I depend upon the fact that Jesus rose again. I want to receive you into the innermost part of my being. Just talk to the Lord Jesus. And then there's not any reason why any one of you couldn't say with Moses, death just means to be gathered with my people.